Hey, you know what we're doing? We are taking a tour through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I got an interesting email early this morning. And uh, I always, even as I'm finishing prepping in the morning, I take a look at the email to see what's going on. But I got an email from a, a man who just recently signed on at our website. And uh, if you sign on to our website, and you may have gotten these unless you're a real old timer before we started doing this, we send a series of, uh, of emails out that are just kind of a primer on the effect and what it is we stand for, you know, the basic five building blocks that, uh, that kind of define who we are and how we approach our spirituality, how we approach Jesus. So he fired back an email saying, why did you refer to Jesus as an Eastern man rather than just referring to him as a Jewish man? about five exclamation points. But it was a great question. I love these questions because there's, and I told them, there's a method in the madness. There's a reason. Because we have so westernized Jesus in our culture and we've also westernized the Jews in our culture. Because of our just sheer familiarity after two millennia of reading these scriptures, we think of Jesus and we think of Jews as being of our culture, thinking the way we think, of the same mindset that we are. So if I called Jesus an Eastern man, I said, apparently it had the right effect on you because it, it's a little bit of a shock. It's a little bit of a, you know, a goad to the ribs that something is different here. Because if we don't approach Jesus and take a trip from our worldview in the modern West to the ancient East, at least to a certain degree, then we're going to miss what it is he's saying. We cannot sit at his feet. We can't step into the sandals of his first hearers and really understand what he's trying to tell us. And that's exactly what happens with the Sermon on the Mount. Last week I used the, uh, the analogy of watching a movie where you're missing every third word of dialogue. You know, and you try to listen harder at first and then your mind starts trying to contextually stitch meaning together by what you did here, Right? And then after a while, you just give up and you go watch something else. And that's what happens with something especially like the Sermon on the Mount. If we're going to approach the Sermon on the Mount, as we typically do as Westerners, from a legal and literal point of view, and think about it, that's who we are. Legal, contractual, performance-based, right? And literal. Everything has to make empirical sense. If we approach what is essentially poetry, the poetic license that Jesus takes in his teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, we will never be able to get what he's talking about. Jesus isn't giving us more rules to obey, and he's not giving us impossible standards that we can't possibly meet. And so that would break us on the law and send us back to God's grace in sort of a passively dependent way. He's giving us a wake-up call to a new reality. He's trying to get us to wake up to see life the way the Father sees life, which is going to be a shock to the system. It was as much a shock to the system of his first hearers, even though they were part of his culture. So imagine how much more we have to be shocked in order for us to get that same kind of impact, to realize that we're not hearing the same old thing. That if it seems familiar, if it seems comfortable, it's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus will take us out of our comfort zone. The radical nature of the Father's love, the radical nature of what Jesus is trying to tell us, by necessity, has to upset your apple cart. So look around. If there's not a bunch of apples around your feet, then you haven't broken through to what Jesus is really trying to tell us. We uh, went through the Beatitudes over the last two Sundays. The Beatitudes 
are essentially a portrait of what the kingdom looks like. And remember, we talked about this. The kingdom is a person. It's not a place. The kingdom is everyone who finally, from the inside out, starts to portray these attributes, starts to live these attributes. But it's this poetic capture of the kingdom attributes that Jesus was after. And to just really quickly take a look so we get a running start into where we're going this morning. The first beatitude, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The third beatitude, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. So we have the poor in spirit. We don't know what that means. We talked about it last week. It means those who have an attitude of poverty, even if they're rich, they are meek, they are humble, they are gentle. So these two beatitudes work together to give us the kingdom characteristics. And if you're looking at your insert, it's there for you so you can kind of follow along. The kingdom characteristics that Jesus is trying to portray in these two beatitudes is humility, to be humble, to be submitted, to be joyfully dependent, not bitterly dependent, but joyfully dependent. Vulnerable, but also fearlessly vulnerable. Not seeing your vulnerability as something to fear and something to defend against, but something to enter into, to lean into. And of course, grateful all at the same time. The characteristics of the Anavim, that spirit of someone who is poor and dependent, but joyful and grateful and fully reliant on God. Then the second beatitude at Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the fifth, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful. You see a pattern there. You see a theme forming. Jesus is trying to get across the kingdom characteristics of being connected, empathetic, compassionate, forgiving, and passionate about everything that we do. The sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Seventh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or children of God. Eighth beatitude, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we said that this one might be a mistranslation or at least missing another layer of meaning because the Aramaic word redep can mean both to pursue and to persecute. And so context is going to force the choice that we make. And we talked about Westerners coming at it from a Western point of view where everything is legal and literal may naturally choose persecution over pursuing because that's where the mindset is. Plus, the so-called ninth beatitude that we're going to talk about this morning is dealing with persecution, so that made sense, right? But here's a possible alternative. Ripe are those. And remember, blessed can mean ripe and healthy and well and whole and complete. Congratulations to you. Fortunate are you. All those things. Ripe are those pursuing rightness and purity for their own sake. For the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven, the realization of unity another good translation of the kingdom of heaven, is present in their lives. And these three, pure in heart, the peacemakers, and peacemakers not understood as just someone who steps in and, and stops a conflict, but someone who gets up unseen, unheralded every single day, dedicated to sowing peace and wholeness in the lives around them. And those who have been 
persecuted or are constantly pursuing righteousness and rightness. The characteristics Jesus is trying to get across in these three are undivertedness, to be integrated, to be consistent, steadfast, patient, earnest, relentless. Do you see the picture that has formed here in these eight Beatitudes? Someone who is humble, someone who understands, realizes, and accepts their own vulnerability, their own basic dependence on everything that life has to offer, and approaches life from that point of view. Not that they're in control, but they even celebrate their powerlessness. They celebrate the fact that they are completely dependent, like a child, on forces around them that are out of control. But at the same time, they also see through to the connection of everything. They have broken past the egoic mind that sees everything as separate and in competition with, to the connection of everyone and everything, that God's Spirit is imbued in everyone and everything, which gives them the compassion, which gives them the quick ability to forgive. And then, also, those, even when they're hurt, and to be vulnerable, to be open and transparent, as the humble person is, as the one who is connected is, to persevere through that hurt, to persevere through that trauma, that disappointment, that betrayal, and to continue to be consistent and steadfast, relentless about pursuing that relationship and that connection. Jesus is saying that all of these together is what comprises kingdom. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you. From our Western ears, that doesn't sound like a very good trade, does it? I mean, these aren't the characteristics that we usually use to mean security for ourselves, to give ourselves a sense of control. It's just the opposite of that, and that's the whole point. Jesus' way, Jesus' picture of kingdom, the freedom of kingdom, to walk in his way and know the truth that makes you free is going to be the opposite of everything that we bring to the table as a legal and literal people as a people who think control is the operative word. Jesus is taking all that and completely turning it around. So these are the characteristics of the kingdom person. The next question is, how does that play out in our lives? Now, the ninth beatitude, starting at verse 11, is really a transition, if you want to look at it that way. Let's take a look. Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you, so we have the same opening, sort of, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, did you notice a change in that beatitude from the other eight? That supposed beatitude. See, this is most likely not a beatitude. This is a transition. And one of the ways that you know that it's a transition, that there's a shift in point of view, there's a shift in pronouns from third person to second person. All the other Beatitudes are blessed are those, third person. This is now blessed are you. It's almost as if Jesus is talking to the people about these characteristics in this objective and maybe more general way, trying to get across the picture. Here's what it looks like for the person that is living in kingdom. And then it's like he turns right to you and looks right in your eyes and says, 
blessed are you when. See, the transition is from this understanding of the characteristics to how does it affect you? What is going to be the effect on your life personally? If you were to engage this, if you, were start, if you would start to display these attributes in your life, what is going to happen to you? What is the effect of this transformation going to be on you? Now, Eugene Peterson in the message, he inserts a little not only that before. In the paraphrase, you'll see that I added that. And he's alluding to this transition that's happening. Now, some scholars believe that these verses actually existed somewhere else in the text and were inserted here. And they could have been inserted way before Matthew inserted this whole Sermon on the Mount in his gospel. Remember, Matthew compiled this gospel. That's what the evangelists did. Luke tells us what the method was. They compiled from everything. It was mostly oral tradition that carried Jesus' teaching forward. But someone was probably writing these things down. They may have taken this and inserted because it had the similar formula, but it came from another setting. And so, from the attributes that cause kingdom that Jesus is talking about in the first eight, he transitions now to the effect of that transformation in a non-kingdom world. Remember, you are going to, if you're going to be a kingdom person, are still swimming in a non-kingdom world, right? You're going to have to deal with people who are not ready for kingdom and deal with a world that is not ready for you as kingdom. And not ready is a perfect way for us to be able to translate the word bisha. We talked about taba and bisha, good and evil in Aramaic, as ripe and not ripe, ready, not ready, mature, immature. The world is simply not ready. It's bisha. We could say it's evil, but that gives us a different understanding in English. But the world isn't ready for kingdom and won't be ready for you in kingdom. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 10.34 when he said, you think I came to bring peace? Now, this is not shalom, the greatest amount of health and wellness and wholeness. This is shaina, which means calm and tranquility. You think I came to bring you calm and tranquility by walking this way? Think again. I came to bring the sword. And then he goes on to say that the division of that the sword creates will be first in your own household. It'll be between husband and wife and parent and child. It is the members of the people that are closest to you that are first going to feel the change in you, the transformation in you, and they're not necessarily going to like it. Jesus left his home, went into the wilderness to complete his spiritual formation. His family thought he was nuts, literally beside himself, Mark tells us, and wanted to have him committed. Well, they wanted to take him home and hide him in a back room someplace because he was embarrassing the family. But that is the kind of separation he's talking about. Any of you who have embarked on a change in any way, maybe some of you were addicts or alcoholics and you became sober, how did that go over with your still using and drinking friends. Even if we're making changes for the better, it leaves people behind. It leaves them in the dust. They can't deal with it. And it creates a sense of separation. Can you persevere through that? Or will that cause you to come scurrying back to what feels more secure? Jesus was absolutely hated and eventually killed because of what he was trying to do for himself first 
and to show, display, teach that connection to everyone around him. But he never wavered. He never stopped. He realized that he was in the right place, even if everybody else was against him and spitting on him. Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. There's a great story that I've told several times in here, but for some of you, maybe it's new. It's about Henry David Thoreau back in the mid-19th uh, century. And uh, the United States had just barked on the Spanish-American War, which he thought was immoral. And in many ways, it was. It was an imperial war that we waged to get more territory. And he wouldn't pay his taxes because he knew his taxes were going to go to support the war effort, and he was thrown in jail. And his friend, Ralph, Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson, why does everybody have three names back there? Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, comes to visit him in jail. And he says, Henry, what are you doing in there? And he says, Ralph, what are you doing out there? I love that, you know. Sometimes we think that we are the crazy one because we're the odd person out. But really, we have to stand on the principles that we are coming to become convinced of if we want to be able to get anywhere we're going. So what's a good paraphrase? If we take this English ninth quote-unquote beatitude and we put it into an Aramaic paraphrase that starts to get the ideas across, starting with the not only that, which I probably wouldn't have used, but at least it's alluding to that this is a transition. You are whole and complete. That would be blessed, right, Tobey? You're whole and complete when willing to be wrongly labeled, shunned, and attacked because of who you are in kingdom and in me. Celebrate. Live to the extremes, including letting yourself and your ego disappear. For this is the key to claiming your new home in God. It is the sign of prophets and prophetesses to see and feel the disunity around them intensely, to be persecuted by circumstances. In other words, if you become transformed enough in kingdom, if you walk down this road far enough, become transformed from the inside out enough, you are going to demand a response in the people around you. You can't just ignore it. There has been an immense change in you. I like to say you become an anchovy. <laughs> and I can see by your faces you have no idea where I'm going with that. Well, everybody has an opinion about anchovies. You either really like them or you really hate them because you've got to taste that strong. It leaves no middle ground, right? It's just the way it is. We will become in kingdom that knife's edge. People will have to make a decision about what it is that we stand for because we stand for something. Something that is incontrovertible. Something that is obvious. Are you willing to become an anchovy? Are you willing to accept the negative response that will come to you because you're an anchovy? Now, how do we know that we are persevering through the stuff that we get back from people around us and from the world. It's the non-retaliation. It is Jesus on the cross at that extremis saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's our ability not to redefend ourselves, not to get bitter, not to seek revenge, not to return evil for evil, tit for tat, but just to let them be, 
Let them have their opinion and to continue steadfast in our own conviction. All of that would be proof of your disappearing ego. The ego, if you are too identified with your ego, you cannot do that. The ego must defend itself as a separate entity, does not see itself as connected in a deep enough way to be able to continue to let things go. It's the key. All this is the key. Letting your ego go, letting your ego disappear, unidentifying yourself with the ego, with the voice that talks in your head, is the key and the only way to real unity. This is why Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father. No one comes to this kind of unity without having gone through the process of expanding past your ego, to expand the bubble of your awareness past just your own head. If you stay in that small space, you cannot be connected. You cannot see the interconnectedness of things. You can't experience the freedom that that brings. It's not possible. And the prophets and contemplatives feel and see the disunity around them more intensely as their ego disappears. As your awareness blossoms out, it becomes more and more obvious to you what is going on. You actually see people. You see relationships. You see the connection. And so this bubble of awareness opens us up to more of the world's pain. We can feel their pain. But not just those who are attacking us. Those who are in pain. We can empathize. We can sympathize. We have compassion. We have a connection with them as well. Those who hurt, we have a heightened connection to their pain. And so it's a two-edged sword. The connection brings us the joy and the freedom, but it also brings us this heightened awareness. We just were talking about this in our uh, Tuesday or Wednesday night last week. Why is it as we go down this path that it seems like we're opened up to more and more of this stuff, the world's pain, all these things that now used to bounce off our force field? And now it's coming in for a landing, right? I'm talking to so many people who are, how do they navigate this? How do they navigate everything that's going on in the world, in the nation, in their city, in their state, in their homes, in their lives, inside their own head? It all becomes so much. Well, that's part of it too, to learn how to navigate that, to learn how to step aside from the things that can't be controlled. But you first have to open yourself up to it. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be a part of this? If you're willing to persevere, if we're not going to be masking or diverting, then our relationship to others and to the world will begin to change. So this first effect of kingdom that Jesus is talking about, this first effect is of the transformation is painful. It brings the opposition of others. It brings a heightened awareness to the pain of others. But if suffered, if endured, suffering understood as enduring, then the second effect of kingdom kicks in. And this is where he's going to talk to us about salt and light. Let's take a look at Matthew 5, starting at verse 13. And here's our friend Eugene Peterson in the message again, giving us these insertions. They don't exist in the text. That's why it's called a paraphrase. But he inserts these transitional phrases. He says, let me tell you why you're here. I think that's perfect. I love that. Okay? Here's what the person in kingdom looks like. 
here's what's going to do to you. First off, here's the first thing you're going to experience if you start to delve into this. You're going to get opposition. You're going to be open to more pain. But now let me tell you why you're here. Let me tell you why you would do this. Let me tell you why it's important and critical for you to become kingdom. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And here's another insertion. Here's another way to put it, Eugene says. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. These message insertions are highlighting the purpose of these metaphors, and these are metaphors. Salt and light are Jesus' metaphoric way, his poetic way of trying to get a truth across. What is the effect on you as you move in? That's what that ninth beatitude was about. But what is the effect that you will have on others and your community as you move into this space? That's salt and light. And so the logic of this passage is to take us through from the portrait to the effect and take us down into what it looks like to actually enter into this space. The ninth, the ninth beatitude is the individual, the effect on the individual by the openness. Salt and light is the effect on others. Now, we're not going to talk about light today. I promised Doug that I'd take smaller bites each Sunday, and hopefully I'm going to be able to do that. Um, but we're going to talk about salt, and we'll talk about light next week. Now, light makes sense to us. Light is a, a metaphor that we understand. It's, it's enough common in our culture that light makes sense. But what about salt? What in the heck does salt have to do with anything that Jesus would be possibly talking about in terms of the effect that the kingdom person is going to have on the people around him and the community around him? You know, in our modern world, in a world that has refrigeration and antibiotics, basically salt is just a table seasoner, right? It's something we season our meat with. Now, if, uh, if any of you grew up in the Midwest or the East, then you also know that they will salt the roads when it gets really cold and icy, and you know what that's about. So you say, okay, there's another use there, you know. And uh, possibly if you have a water softener in your home, then you know you put salt in that and it softens the water. But other than that, salt doesn't have a whole big relevance in our culture anymore. But if you move back into the ancient world, the salt to the ancients was a completely different matter. In a world that didn't have refrigeration or antibiotics, salt was essential to life. And everyone who was listening to Jesus use this metaphor would immediately understand what he means because of the place that salt had in their culture, in their day-to-day -day lives. So let's take a look at salt for a couple of minutes. How does salt function? Well, first of all, table salt, the white stuff that you got, sodium chloride, right? It's one of the most important chemical compounds in life. Did you know that the human body is around 60% salt water? So 60% of your weight is salt water. Same basic salinity as seawater. You know, if you've ever tasted your blood, it's salty, right? 
it's kind of interesting. I guess we came out of the sea, if you still believe in evolution. <laughs> so I guess that, that salinity is the same salinity as uh, the fluids in our body. Now, humans and mammals can't function without salt in their diet. Any of you who grew up on a farm or have raised animals, you know that you have salt licks in the field, right? So that the cattle and the other animals can lick the salt. They know when they need it, and they'll go for it, and they'll lick you. I think that's what my our little dog is after, who licks me constantly. I think I'm the salt lick for the dog. I don't think he loves me that much, or she does. So you got salt licks. So we have to maintain a certain amount of salt in our bodies to be able to survive. It's also one of the basic tastes in life. You know, there's five tastes, basically, sweet, sour, salt, and bitter. And the fifth one is sometimes called umami. Ever heard that word before? It just means deliciousness or deliciousness, savory in Japanese, but it has to do with a savory um, kind of taste. Those are the five basic tastes, and salt is one of them. And it's used as seasoning, but not just for itself. It also has the ability to bring out other flavors in the food and, in, and in, make them more intense because of the salt. The most important thing to the ancient world is that salt kills bacteria by alkalinizing, alkalinizing the environment. And you know the pH from acid to base. So you put in alkaline in order to take it to the top end of the scale and take it away from the acid. Bacteria like an acid environment. And so by alkalinizing, I cannot say that word, alkalinizing. There it is, alkalinizing the environment. The, um, the bacteria don't like that. Plus, if you've ever had too much salty pizza, you know that you start to shrivel up. The salt will extract the fluids and the water out of the, the, the cells of the bacteria and kill them that way. So salt is a natural antibiotic. Now, the ancients knew nothing about bacteria, of course. That didn't come about until the 17th, 18th century. But they knew that salt worked, and so they used it. They used it as a preservative for meats. We still salt meats today. You know, what is salted pork? What's bacon? You know, what's salted anchovies, if you ever like anchovies? But they could take the meats and they could salt them down and pack them in salt. They could also do the same thing with produce, with fruits and vegetables. That's what pickles came from. The whole pickling process of putting the fruits and vegetables in brine and sealing them into jars was something that kept them alive through the winters or through droughts because they had no way to preserve anything. Now, fire and smoke did the same thing. Frank's a master meat smoker. He likes to do that. It's the fire and the smoke that also kills the bacteria and will preserve the meat. And so they would do that too, make jerky, whatever. But salt was a huge part of that process, a preservative for meats and fruits and vegetables. Before refrigeration, it preserved human life during these winters and droughts. It was also used as a disinfectant. To put salt in the wounds is, you know, we talk about that as adding insult to injury, but it's literally what they would do. They would pack the wound with salt. They didn't know why it worked, but they knew if they didn't did it, didn't did it, didn't do it, you were going to lose the limb, right? It was going to go into gangrene, and they knew that was bad, so they would pack the wound with salt. Hurt like heck, but it would do the trick, right? They didn't know why. It was also used as a cleanser. All the way through to the Middle Ages, it was rubbed on tables and counters. Again, I mean, it had an abrasive effect, for one thing. They knew that it helped, but they weren't sure why. In the Middle East or other areas, they have a very highly acidic soil. And so they would use salt as a fertilizer to balance the pH 
so that it would make it fertile for their crops. And salt was used as a fertilizer in small amounts in even in the British Isles until all the way up to World War II. The Brits were still using salt as a fertilizer. Now, that was in small amounts. In large amounts, <laughs> it would destroy the soil. You've heard of armies that would go through the ancient lands and sow the fields with salt. They would put so much salt on it that they would destroy they would sterilize the soil for up to 10 years by sowing too much salt. Salt had three functions, therefore. First, to purify and to preserve food and life. Secondly, to fertilize new life. And third, to add taste and zest to life. Now, the people in that ancient culture understood this completely, and they understood where this metaphor was going. But salt even had more importance. It was essential for life, and so it was also the basis for ancient trade. Did you know that salt was traded equally for gold and silver and fine cloth? The source of tax revenue often could be paid with salt. It was used as currency. Salt cakes were used as currency in many ancient societies. A Roman soldier's pay included an allowance of salt, which was called a salarium which is where we get our word salary and get our word sale, has to do with salt. The word sal in Latin means salt. So any word that we have that starts with sal, it has to do with salt. Soldier, originally S-A-L, soldier literally means one who is paid with salt. And so we have the saying, someone who's worth their salt, is worth their pay and salt. Salus means health, wealth, or security in Latin. Salud in Spanish that we have borrowed as a loan word is to health, to wealth, as we toast instead of saying cheers. Salvus in Latin means safe, it means well, it means saved, it means soundness. And so salvatio in Latin also means salvation or deliverance. A salvator in Spanish is savior in English, all coming from salt. Saluto means to preserve, to keep safe. A salutatio is a greeting, wishing health. And so a salute in our language, or a salutation, has to do with salt, wishing health and wealth and wellness and soundness to a person. And so symbolically in the ancient world, salt was seen as a symbol for endurance, for faithfulness, for preservation, for dependability, for steadfastness, fertility, purity. All these things were symbolized by salt because of the place that it held in their culture. Their experience, daily experience with salt made salt this symbol. Ancient treaties and covenants were ratified with an exchange of salt. Each, eating a, each side eating a pinch of salt together, having an open bowl of salt on the table for their common meal. The common salt meant peace and friendship. In Mark 9.50, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. Have peace in one another. That's two ways of saying the exact same thing. To have salt in yourself, in yourselves, is to have peace in one another. Same concept. Another example of Jewish poetry that repeats concepts rather than sounds. In the verse before that, Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, both fire and salt were purifiers. They preserved. In Gehenna, 
Gehinnom, the Valley of Gehinnom, they constantly kept the fires burning and all the organic refuge was thrown on these piles to burn because salt would kill the bacteria, kill the cholera and other diseases and purify them. Salt had the same effect. Everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be purified, is what Jesus is saying. Burnt offerings were seasoned with salt by Torah law in Leviticus as a symbol of faithfulness and purity. Anointing oil was salted. Exodus 30 tells them to do that for the same reason. And if you didn't know this, holy water, if you're a Catholic, holy water is both blessed and salted. A pinch of salt is added to the holy water. Same reason. Rabbinical literature sees Israel as salt, the purifying agent among the nations. It's seen as a symbol of sharpness of wit, wisdom, knowledge, or reserve and skepticism. Colossians 4.6, Paul says, Let your speech always be grateful, seasoned with salt, with wisdom. And of course, taking someone with a grain of salt means that you're going to be skeptical of them. You're going to be wise and you're going to be discerning about what is going on around you. Salt. Who knew? All of this for salt. The ancient world knew, which is why Jesus used salt and light as the metaphors for the effect that the kingdom person would have on the people and the communities around him or her. Three functions. Preserve and purify. Second, fertilize. And third, to add flavor, to add zest to life. If Jesus, and then Jesus says, if the salt becomes tasteless, in other words, if the salt becomes purposeless, how do you make it salty again? How do you bring purpose back in? Now the Talmud, which is the uh, rabbinical Jewish codification of all their oral tradition, <laughs> has a saying that how do you make salt salty again? By salting it with the afterbirth of a mule. Ew, right? What are they talking about? Well, unless you know that a mule is sterile and doesn't bear young, then you'll realize what they're pointing to is the impossibility of resalting salt that has lost its saltiness. Now, sodium chloride chemically can't lose its saltiness. It's either salt or it's not. And if it is salt, then it's going to be salty. All right? If it's not salty, then it ain't salt, which is really what they're talking about here. If it's not salt, then it's also not a preserver of life. Remember Yoda? That, I think it was the second, um, uh, the second Star Wars movie. And uh, Luke is on the planet trying to learn how to be a Jedi from Yoda. And he's being a, you know, being a big baby about it. And um, Yoda tells him to raise his uh, jet out of the swamp. And he says, I'll try. And Yoda shoots back at him, try not, in that little voice. You know, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. <laughs> I love that line. Try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Either you're salt or you're not, is the idea here. Do or do not. If you can't perform the needed function, right? If you're not Taba, if you're still Bisha, I mean, it's no fault of your own. You just can't do it yet. You're not salt yet. You're not kingdom yet. You're not there yet. But if you can't, then he says you don't have a function all you can do is throw it out and let it be trampled underfoot. Like the fig tree. Remember Jesus cursing the fig tree? Why would he curse a fig tree? It's just a poor tree. Not only that, it wasn't even the season for figs, and he's cursing it because there is no figs. There are no figs, to be grammatically correct. But 
But that story comes right on the heels of the cleansing of the temple, and we see the two together. The temple looked beautiful from the outside, the symbol of everything that Judaism was about and everything that Israel was about. The fig tree was a symbol of Judaism and Judaism's Judaism's ability to be a preserver among the nations. And yet both were completely sterile. Jesus was simply exposing the sterility, the inability, the bishanness of Israel and Israel's religion where it had fallen to by his time to be able to nourish the people, to preserve their life spiritually. Same idea that's going on here. What is Jesus' poetry here pointing at? What does salt look like in our lives? Let me ask you this. Who is salt for you in your life? Is there a person that you would say is salt with everything that we've learned about salt? Is there someone who functions as salt in your life? Who heals you? Who binds up your wounds physically, emotionally? Who keeps you on track? Who is willing to discipline you? Who is willing to help feed you and clothe you and provide for you all the things that you need? In other words, who functions as salt as a preservative? Who is that person in your life? Can you think of someone who functions that way? Who encourages you? Who opens doors to new possibilities in your life? Who makes you think? Who is constantly spurring you on to more that you can do? Things that maybe you haven't even thought of. Encouraging you to take risks to do things that maybe just seemed impossible before they came into your life. In other words, who functions as a fertilizer in your life to new life, to new experience? Who makes you laugh? Who makes you think? Who makes you feel better about yourself? Who is a seasoning that adds zest and laughter to your life? Who do you always want at your party? If you're throwing a party, is there someone that you always want to have them there? because they always add something to the gathering. And maybe even more important, who is it that you would want to take on a long car ride? There's your acid test. Who is a person that you would want to be with for hours and hours in a closed space? Would anyone say this about you, that you are salt in their life in these ways? Ultimately, the kingdom person is a salty person, someone who is ultimately no longer afraid. That is the main characteristic of a kingdom person. They're no longer afraid. Look, we all know that everything that we have, everything that we possess can be taken from us. And more than that, we know that everything that we have will be taken from us eventually. If not before, then certainly at the moment of death. That's when everything that we have, everything that it means to be a human being as we understand it, is taken from us. And that fear of loss drives us. The fear of losing the things that we've worked so hard, the things that we believe are our security and survival. And so we defend the things that we have. We put the shields up. 
And as long as those shields is up, as long as we remain in a defended position, we can't connect. We can't be present to each other. We can't be salt. We can't be kingdom. We have created a barrier between us and everyone and everything else because we're afraid of losing the things we have. To be preoccupied with ourselves, with our ego, with the things that the ego tells us we need, to be envious, to be jealous, to be angry, to be frustrated, all of that is the opposite of the characteristics of the kingdom resident, the opposite of the characteristics of the anavim, the one who has already experienced loss, either through circumstance or, as Jesus said, has sold everything that they own, given it away, and is still grateful at the same time. The kingdom person is the one who has let their ego disappear enough to be able to find the connection beyond that bubble that cannot ever be taken away. There is a connection that we can't lose. There is a love that can't be lost. And that is gospel. That is the good news. But such a love can only be found on the other side of such egoic concerns. And that's why the process that Jesus lays out, the way, is a way of subtraction, not addition, of letting go of all the things that bind us, all the things that limit us, all the things that obstruct our vision of what is really there. When we begin to see who we really are, in other words, when we develop enough humility to understand who we are in our relationships, we begin to see everyone else as the same as us loved the same as us. And when we can start to see each other as God sees us, then we can start to lay down our defenses. And with defenses down, we become free to love as God loves, as Jesus loves. We become free to be salt in each other's lives. We have a couple pictures here that we've had, I think, nearly all 14 years that the effect has been in operation. One of them's right there. The other one's in our little Bubba room over here. But they're pictures of a laughing Jesus. And, you know, I don't get so many comments anymore, but when we first had them, remember, especially on Tuesday nights when the recovery crowd would come in, it was invariably that we would get people saying, I've never seen a picture like that before. Jesus laughing? You know? Now it's becoming a little more commonplace. I mean, this, uh, this uh, series that I keep hearing about Chosen, which I haven't watching, watched yet, and a couple others have betrayed Jesus more this way. And I'm so glad to see that, that it's becoming more mainstream, that we start to understand Jesus as laughing. You know, not with a King James rod up his back, you know, and straight and, and stiff and always staring into the clouds and speaking King James English. He was someone like that, someone who was connected, someone who wasn't afraid to be undignified, someone who just threw himself into relationships, let kids climb all over him and pull his beards and gave horseback rides. This is Jesus. These pictures surprised us because they're antithetical to what we thought we imagine that Jesus was supposed to be. Some of it coming from the way we look at the eighth and ninth Beatitudes, that to be like Jesus, we had to suffer more. 
And so we started looking for ways to suffer more in order to be closer to Jesus. That somehow this way of Jesus was serious business. Now the kingdom includes suffering. Of course, that's what Jesus is saying. But it's suffering always with a purpose. And if there's purpose to the pain, then it becomes noble. It becomes vital. It becomes salty because it's taking us where we need to go. Suffering loss through this way of subtraction, subtraction of ego is what makes us free as it takes us to truth. Free to be able to play, to be undignified, to be last, not to always be first, to fail, to wash the feet of people around us, to encourage them, to empower them, to laugh, to be salt. We become free to leave people better than we found them at every encounter without a second thought because it's just who we are and what we do, because we have become one with the Father and one with all. Jesus laughed because he found the good news of a love that can't be lost. And he was trying to tell us that we can laugh for the same reason. If we are willing to persevere through the difficulties to get to the place where we understand that everything is one thing, and in that, we can finally relax. Let's pray. Father, again, it is so amazing to dive beneath the surface of your word. To take a metaphorical time machine back. To sit with those first hearers in the dirt, on a rock. And hear these words as they were first delivered. To put ourselves in that position. To take ourselves down off of whatever pedestal, intellectually, culturally, we find ourselves. And just mix. Just come to that place of connection and see what is really there. Father, we do want to be salt. Help us to be willing to persevere the process that will take us to get there. Even if we take small steps, even if we take two steps forward and one back, keep us moving in the direction of more and more freedom in your word, more and more freedom in the reality of your presence. We're so grateful, Lord, that we can sit here and we can talk about these things and we can practice them with each other. Father, never let us forget that we can only love, we can only do any of this because you did it first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.